Our reading this morning is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. John, chapter 16, beginning in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed I am come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. Why is this is why we believe you came from God? Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning we continue our series in the Gospel of John. Before I preach, though, let me mention one thing. Next week, uh, we are back to one service for the summer, and that service is at, anyone know what time? Nine o'clock, 9 a.m., one service next week. What time? Okay, just double-checking. All right, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for all the ways that you have blessed us. Father, thank you for giving us the Holy Scriptures. Thank you for revealing very, very clearly to us what you expect of us and what you've done for us. Father, we pray that as the Word of God is preached this morning, that you would fill all of us with your Spirit. Lord, give us the gift of understanding this morning. Help us to not just understand, but also apply these truths to our lives. And Lord, help us to worship you um, as the Word is preached. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. According to Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Reagan, Sir Winston Churchill was the greatest statesman to ever live. Now, how could they make these incredibly audacious claims? It's because Winston Churchill had this amazing ability to foresee the future. He had this uncanny um, capability to see what was going to happen in the future, warn of it, and then prepare for it but often he was ignored. For instance, in 1921, in a speech to the House of Commons, Churchill warned of a militant Muslim sect, the Wahhabi sect, who would in the future terrorize the West with bomb-carrying jihadists. He didn't perfectly predict 9-11, but he came awfully close. In the 1930s, Churchill warned all of Europe of the dangers of Hitler and Germany, but everyone ignored him. Then a decade later, Churchill warned again uh, the Americans and the Brits that the Soviet Union would soon pose a threat to all the democracies in Europe, but once again, he was ignored. Somehow, Churchill had this ability to, to look into the horizon, to see the future, see the danger, 
and warn people and then prepare people for that oncoming danger. This brings us to the very end of the Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 14 to 16. Christ has just spent the last three chapters giving the disciples some final teaching before he is betrayed and arrested, and he's told them multiple times that there is trouble in their future. There's trouble on their horizon. He warns them of coming persecution and hardship. He sees the future, he knows the future, and he warns them. But he doesn't just warn them, he also provides them with hope. He provides them with a strategy or a solution for dealing with that trouble coming in the future. I don't know what your future holds, but if you live long enough, you will experience trouble. Maybe you can see that trouble right now. And when when you see that trouble on the horizon, how should you and I respond to that trouble? How should we glorify God in the midst of a dangerous and hard future? Well, Jesus tells the disciples and he tells us that when trouble is on our horizon, we must do two things. And these two things will help us deal with that coming trouble. What are those two things? He tells us to remember two things. Remember the Father's love and remember the Son's peace. And when you do that, you'll be able to withstand the trouble in your future. So first, Jesus tells the disciples to remember the Father's love. Let's look at a few aspects of the Father's love, starting with the fact of the Father's love. It's a fact that the Father loves the disciples. Uh, John 16, 25 to 27, Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, the hour that he's talking about here uh, is the time period between his resurrection and his ascension. Verse 26, in that day, you will ask in my name, that is, you'll pray to me, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So in verses 23 to 25, last week's sermon, Jesus spoke to the disciples about prayer. And he continues that discussion on prayer here in these verses. Jesus is not saying that I will never intercede on your behalf to the Father. We know from from many other texts of Scripture that Jesus is constantly interceding for us. And then in John 17, that whole glorious chapter describes in detail Jesus praying for us, the saints. So what is Christ saying in here, specifically uh, in verse 26, when he says, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. What he's saying here is we don't have to go to Christ and say, Christ, please tell the Father this or that. He's saying, no, you can go directly to the Father because I'm about to suffer and die on the cross in your place. The Father cares about you, and he wants you to come straight to him, and you can because I have made a way, or I'm about to make a way through my death and resurrection. He's saying the Father wants you to go to Him, to ask Him directly for things because of what Christ has done. Which raises the question, why does the Father want us to go directly to Him through the Son when we pray? And the answer is simple. 
It's because the Father loves us. Verse 27, Jesus says, for the Father himself loves you. And because he loves you again, he wants you to go straight to him through the work of the Son. But does the Father really love us? Does he really? Is there proof? Yes. Let's keep reading. So we've looked so far at the fact of the Father's love. In addition, there is the proof of the Father's love, the fact of his love, and now the proof of the Father's love. Well, what is that proof? Look with me at verses 28 to 30. Verse 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Verse 28 is a wonderful summary of the whole ministry of Christ, and this ministry was the result or the design of God the Father. Let's look at this this wonderful verse, phrase by phrase. The first phrase of verse 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father, which implies, by the way, that Jesus is co-eternal co-equal and co-substantial with the Father. He's equal with the Father. But this verse also implies that if he came from the Father, that salvation was the Father's plan. It was the Father's idea. Theologians talk about the covenant of redemption and eternity past and the decrees of God. God the Father designed this incredible plan to save sinners, and the Father sent the Son to carry out that plan. We read about this in John 3.16. John 3.16 says, for God, that is God the Father, so loved the world that he sent his only Son. So it was the Father who sent the Son. Why? Because the Father loves sinners. Next phrase in verse 28, I came from the Father and I have come into the world. Verse 28b, Jesus came into the world born of a virgin, taking on flesh. The incarnation was the humblest act that ever happened in world history. Christ took on flesh, came into the world, taught and performed miracles. Then the next phrase, and now, Jesus says, verse 28c, I am leaving the world. Well, how is he leaving the world? He's leaving the world through an incredibly painful process. He's leaving the world by way of the cross. He came into the world to suffer and die for us, and he's going to leave the world, give up his life on the cross so that you and I, sinners, could have relationship with the Father. And the last clause in verse 28, and I'm going to the Father. He died on the cross, rose from the grave, and then he ascended to the Father's right hand. And from that place where he is seated, by the way, because he's seated, that means that the work of salvation is complete, it's done, it's finished, which means there is nothing left for you and I to do. As he's sitting there at the Father's right hand, he is ruling and reigning over all things. He's praying for us, and he will pour out the Spirit for us. This entire plan summarized in verse 28, was all the doing of the Father. He was the one who planned this incredible scheme to save sinners. It was his idea. And this is the proof that the Father loves you, loves me, and loves the disciples. Now, the Bible often speaks of the Father's love. The Father is called the God of love, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. John tells us that God is love. 1 John 4, 8. 
The Father sends sun and rain on the evil and the good, Matthew 5.45. The Father is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, Luke 6.35. James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from where? The Father. He's referred to as the God of all grace, 1 Peter 5.10. The Father is described as being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2.4. Do you think of God the Father as a God who is rich in mercy? He is. He is called the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, Psalm 145.8. These are all wonderful texts, and all these texts indicate that the Father is a God of love. But the greatest proof by far that the Father loves you and me is the cross. And that's all the proof we need that the Father, in fact, loves us. 1 John 4.10, John writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. God the Father loved you and I so much that he sent his only son to absorb all the wrath that we deserved on the cross. What else can the Father do to prove that he has extravagant love for us? This is all the proof we need. It's all right here in the cross. Now, when we doubt the Father's love, it's often because we see trouble on the horizon. Things are not going our way. Marriage, finances, health, relationships are all difficult. In those moments, we must remember, no matter how we're feeling or what we're experiencing, God the Father loves us with extravagant love. And the proof of that, again, is the cross. It almost seems like when Christ was suffering and dying on the cross, in that moment of agony and pain, it sure seems like the Father loves you more than his own son, which is not true, but it seems that way, doesn't it? That's how much the Father loves us. And if the Father has given us his son, what good thing will he withhold from us? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What a promise. If there's something good the Father thinks you need, he'll give it to you. How do we know? Because he gave us his own son. The Father is not stingy. He's incredibly generous and merciful and kind, and gracious. He's given us his son. Well, Dave, I know that God loves humanity, but does God love me? And maybe I was part of a group plan. Does he really love me as an individual? I mean, if he knew all the things that I'd done, he probably wouldn't love me all that much. The Father knows everything about you. And if you're a Christian, he loves you with an extravagant 
love. And he sent his son to suffer and die for all of your sins. He loves you as an individual, and his son died for you as an individual. He knows every single thing about you. Sadly, for many of us, the Father and the Son are at odds with each other. The Father is portrayed often uh, as a harsh, stern member of the Trinity who can't wait to go Old Testament on the believers. And the Son is seen as this warm and gracious and compassionate member of the Trinity who is begging his Father for mercy and begging his Father to not pour out wrath on us. But the cross proves that nothing is further from the truth. Again, it was the Father who sent the Son. Now, I've shown this before, but I want to show it again because it's it's, um, an accurate portrayal of how many people uh, view the Father. So can you show the Gary Larson cartoon? Now, there's so much wrong with this uh, violation of the second commandment. God does not look like that, by the way. Okay, that's supposed to be God. And what's the button he's pressing? It's the smite button. God's just waiting to get us. If we screw up just once, he's going to drop a piano on our heads. That's how many of us view the Father, if we're honest. But again, the cross of Christ proves that nothing is further from the truth. The Father is totally committed to your eternal happiness and welfare. And the proof of that is the fact that he sent his son to suffer and die in your place. And again, is there anything more the father can do to prove that he loves you? And the answer is a resounding no. That's all the proof that's required. He sent his son to suffer and die in your place. When trouble is on the horizon, we must remember the father's love. But there's more to remember, which brings us to the next point. First, remembering the Father's love. Second, is remembering the Son's peace. Let's look at a few aspects of the Son's peace, starting with the recipients of peace. Who is offered this peace? John 16, 29 to 32. His disciples said, Ah, Now you are speaking plainly, Jesus, and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. The disciples say, Jesus, we finally get it. We understand your cryptic words. And he says, no, you actually don't. Because I know that in a very short period of time, in a matter of hours, when you see those Roman swords and when you hear all the soldiers and see the spears, you're going to abandon me and run for your lives. I know what's going to happen. You're going to forsake me in my hour of need. You're going to reject me. Jesus knows all this. Yet despite that, he still is about to offer these guys peace. He's about to offer peace to people whom he knows are about to abandon him. Wow. That's mercy. 
That's grace. The disciples, and you and me, do not deserve any kind of offer of peace from Jesus. They abandon him. We abandon him all the time when we sin. When you and I sin, in that moment of transgression, we are essentially saying, this thing I want to do is more valuable to me than Jesus. This sinful thought, this act of anger, this act of theft, this act of jealousy, those things in that moment become more important to us than Jesus. And we abandon Jesus. Yet Jesus still offers the disciples and he offers us peace, which means, here's the good news, his peace cannot be earned. We can't earn it. We can never earn it. There's nothing we can do to be good enough to earn this offer of peace. Christ is incredibly gracious. He offers peace to those who will abandon him. But what is this peace like? Let's keep reading. So the recipients of peace. Next is the nature of peace. Look with me at verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now the expression peace, Hebrew shalom, has a much richer, fuller meaning than an absence of hostility or conflict. In the Bible, this word shalom or this word peace means a universal human flourishing, universal human wholeness. All things are right with God and creation and the world. Christ is offering the disciples shalom, peace, which has a rich, a rich, wonderful meaning from the Old Testament. So with the prospect of suffering and hardship on the disciples' horizon, Jesus says, Jesus offers them this experience of shalom or peace. And Christ makes the same promise to us. There's a famous British New Testament scholar who's now dead. Uh, his name was Leon Morris. And illustrating this notion of peace from this text, he describes an old famous painting. And in this painting, there's this incredible storm raging at sea. Uh, and there's massive waves that are um, bashing themselves against a massive stone cliff. At the bottom of a cliff uh, is a huge ship. And as the waves are bashing against this ship, the ship is coming apart. There's sailors drowning. There's broken boards everywhere. It's an intense, violent storm that's causing all kinds of damage for the ship. But this rock is massive. And up in the corner of this massive rock is a little crack in the rock, and inside that crack is a nest, and inside that nest is a dove. And because that massive, or that little nest and that dove are inside this crack in this massive rock, the waves cannot harm this nest. They are being protected. The nest is being protected from this violent storm. And Morris writes this, believers are not immune to the storms of life. They must bear them, but they are secure. The rock of ages is their sure refuge, and there they have peace. In Christ, we can experience supernatural 
peace in the midst of oncoming storms. But how or why? Let's keep reading. There's the recipients of peace, the nature of peace, in addition is the source of peace. How can you and I experience that supernatural peace in that cleft in the rock where there's a storm raging all around us? Verse 33, the source of peace. I have said these things to you, says Jesus, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart I have overcome the world. Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. The Greek for tribulation in John's gospel often means persecution. Now, it's not too hard to see that persecution is coming in our culture. It's often in the headlines. Many members of the emerging militant woke mob will not stop at anything until Christians are totally silenced. Silenced with fines, jail time, vandalism, and worse. Persecution also involves being snubbed by workmates, by friends, being ridiculed by family, being passed over for promotion at work. All these things are tribulation. Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. Christ literally says, be of good cheer. Take heart. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, the verb to overcome was a military term used to denote victory in warfare. Well, how has Jesus overcome the world? He hasn't yet in the story, but he's about to because he's about to go to the cross and suffer and die and rise from the grave victoriously. And in his death and resurrection, He will be victorious over the world. He will overcome the world. He will conquer the world. On the cross, Christ defeated the power of death, which means as Christians, we don't have to fear death. On the cross, Christ defeated the penalty of sin, which means that we can be forgiven, declared righteous. We can be reconciled to a holy God. And on the cross, Jesus also defeated the power of sin, which means that you and I do not have to be enslaved to sin. Furthermore, on the cross, Jesus Christ defeated the power of Satan, which means that Satan can do nothing to ultimately harm you and I. On the cross, Christ overcame or defeated our greatest enemies, the power of death, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and the power of Satan. Yes, we still sin. And yes, Satan is still alive and very active. And yes, we still die. But ultimately, those enemies can do nothing to snatch us out of God's hands. Those enemies can do nothing to diminish our experience of God's love. And those enemies cannot stop you and I from appearing in heaven someday in glorified resurrection bodies. Christ has overcome our enemies. Therefore, we can have peace. And this leads the Apostle Paul to write these astonishing words in Romans 8, 35 to 39. He says this, 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. In the Greek there, it's we are super abundant conquerors through him, through Christ, who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing No one, no circumstance in all creation can separate you, Christian, from God's love in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ overcame the world through his life, his death, and his resurrection. If this is true, Christian, you should never complain about anything. And you should never be afraid of anything. What's the worst something can do to you? Persecute you? Kill you? The Apostle Paul says that in all things we are more than conquerors. This means that Christians should be the most joyful people you know anywhere. Because there is nothing in this life that can separate you from God's love. Nothing. Nothing. Or Christ and the Apostle Paul are lying to us. But think of all the times that you and I grumble and complain and are anxious about the future. Christ has overcome the world. And if that's true, shame on us for complaining, grumbling, or fretting, or being anxious. Now, the Lord of the Rings comes to a climax, as many of you know, inside the cave of Mount Doom. And this story is about a small ragtag group called the Fellowship of the Rings. They have one simple goal, and their goal is to destroy the mighty ring of power. And they can only destroy that ring of power by dropping it in the molten lava of Mount Doom. And when they do, when that ring is finally destroyed by the lava of Mount Doom, The powers of darkness will be overcome. So a thousand pages describe this journey of getting this ring to the flames of Mount Doom. And eventually, as many of you know, spoiler, if you haven't read the books or seen the movies, I don't know what planet you live on. But eventually, through strange circumstances, Frodo uh, and... Sam and Gollum end up inside Mount Doom, right? Did they get that right? Yeah. And Gollum is the one who ironically gets the the ring inside the lava. And when that happens, instantly, everything changes. As soon as that ring is destroyed, the powers of evil are overcome. Now, the change doesn't happen instantly, the two hobbits still have to get out of, the, out of the, uh, Mount Doom and they have to get home to the Shire. It takes a while. And their lives are still going to be full of hardship and difficulty and pain. 
But once that ring is destroyed, everything changes. Their enemies, Sauron and Saruman, are finally defeated, which means they have no more power in Middle-earth, all because that ring was destroyed. When Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross, He destroyed the power of the evil one. Yes, life is still hard. We still experience pain and hardship and death. But Christ's victory on the cross was decisive. And because he died and rose from the grave, everything changes for us. We have hope and we can experience supernatural peace despite life's difficulties. And all this leads the Apostle Paul to write these glorious words in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How can the Apostle Paul boldly pray for supernatural peace? Because he knows that Jesus Christ has overcome the world for him and for us. And if that's the case, we can experience supernatural peace despite all of life's circumstances. No matter how hard life gets, it is possible for you and for me to experience that supernatural peace described by Paul in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. That peace can be yours. Often it's not ours because we forget all the things that Christ has done. We must remember that Christ is currently on the throne, ruling and reigning over all things. We must remember that He has conquered all of our enemies. And we must remember that we are no longer guilty. And we must remember that we don't have to fear death And we must remember that because Christ overcame the world, he can right now and in our future work all things, all things for our good and his glory. We must remember those things. We must ask God for grace to remember those things because often in the midst of life's difficulties, we forget. But because Christ has overcome the world, we can experience supernatural peace, real peace, lasting peace. Well, what troubles are on your horizon this week? What troubles are coming your way? When troubles come, we must remember two things. God the Father loves us, and God the Son offers us peace. Let's pray together.